It's great to be here again. I just love coming over here. When I'm on vacation, I come over here. When I have opportunity to come over and preach, I come over here. It was a struggle to let Micah come last week. But I understand that he uh, did a good job and brought the word to you, and, and in that I can rejoice. So it's great uh, to be here with you this morning. So uh, December, middle of December 2013, huh? Like, what happened? Huh, where'd it go? You know, the older I get, the faster it seems to go, doesn't it? You know when you're a kid, it, it like is forever for something to come? And then you get older, and man, the years are just going like that. Well, as you come up on the, uh, the end of this year, let me ask you a question. Something to think about here a minute. Are you, are you where you want to be in life? If you were to kind of consider your life, are, are, you, are you where you want to be? Are you investing the time that God has allotted to you in a way that you'd want to do that? Or is life just sort of washing over you, right? One wave after another. I'm going to start this morning with a, a little story, kind of get the scene started for us. In 1904, William Borden, a member of the Borden Dairy family, he finished high school in Chicago, and he was given a world cruise as a graduation present. So that tells you immediately the kind of family he grew up in, right? Because I'm sure all of your children, when they graduate from high school, get world cruises, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, when he was uh, traveling on this cruise through the Far East, he, um, he became heavily burdened for the lost. After returning home, he spent uh, seven years at Princeton University, first four in his undergraduate work, and then the last three at Princeton Seminary. And while in school, he penned these words in the back of his Bible, no reserves, no reserves. Although his family pleaded with him upon graduation to take control of the family business, which was floundering, he insisted that God's call to the mission field had priority on his life. And upon graduation, he disposed of his wealth. And then he wrote in the back of his Bible, after where it said, uh, no reserves, he wrote these words, no retreat. No reserves, no retreat. Well, on his way to China to witness to Muslims there and living in China, he contacted cerebral meningitis in Egypt, and he died within a month of contacting the disease. After his death, someone looking through his Bible discovered these final words, no regrets, no regrets. In spite of his unfulfilled dreams, William Borden was confident that he had lived a life pleasing to the Lord. Would you like to live a life like that. I know I would. And I trust that that would be true for you too. 
Do you like to know with certainty that whatever happens to you in life, either good or bad, at the end of your life, when you look back over the years, you'll have no regrets? That's the kind of life I want to live. I trust that's the kind of life you want to live. So this morning, the, uh, the Scriptures are going to equip us to do just that. So open your Bibles up to Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. And this, uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul, it's addressed to Timothy. Timothy was uh, younger than the Apostle Paul. Uh, many believe that Paul actually led him to faith and then certainly uh, discipled him. Timothy was uh, a pastor by this time and, and uh, a really uh, close and faithful friend of the Apostle Paul. This letter was written probably sometime around A.D. 67. It was written near the end of Paul's life and in fact, it's the last recorded correspondence that we have from the Apostle Paul. He's sitting at this point in time inside a Roman prison cell, and he's awaiting execution. He's on death row. And the letter is, um, is poignant. The letter is powerful. It is his last will and testament. It focuses attention on the things that are really important. When someone is at the end of life, all of the stuff that typically occupies us tends to lose its value, doesn't it? And we sort of focus on the things that are really important. And so as we look together at this letter this morning, I think that that's exactly what we're going to see here. I want to find with you in the text, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 6 through 8, and I want, to, I want to find with you here three foundational requirements for Christian living. Three foundation requirements for Christian living so that when we get to the end of our lives, we can, like William Borden, have no regrets. So I'm going to pick it up, though, in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4 and just kind of read through to verse 8. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. I apologize for that. I haven't been able to make the transition to the ESV. But I did look, and uh, the text is very close, so I think we're fine. So uh, from the New American Standard, beginning in verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So three foundations here in verses 6 through 8. And the first here in verse 6, if we want to finish life without regrets, the first foundation is we need to recognize our mortality. First, we need to recognize our mortality in verse 6. And, and Paul uses in, this, um, in these verses here, he uses a number of various metaphors. Those are figures of speech that, are, that communicate ideas. And he begins here in verse 6 with uh, two of them, two metaphors in verse 6. And he uses them to describe his anticipated death here. And the first is, is a drink offering. And uh, the second one he talks about is the time of his departure. Those are two, two metaphors. So let's take a look here at this first one, the drink offering. That's, um, that's something that's a little bit strange to us. It's, it's associated with a Jewish temple worship in uh, Paul's day. And essentially what it was was an offering of wine. And uh, prior to the... Um, the daily burnt offering that would be offered there in the temple of, of uh, in this case, Herod's temple. The, uh, the worshiper would, would be commanded, and depending on the sacrifice that was brought, a certain quantity of wine. And the wine would be poured out at the, at the base of the altar at, at sort of the beginning of the, of the sacrificial process. And it was called a drink offering, a drink offering. And Paul says here that, uh, that he is already being poured out like a drink offering or as a drink offering. And it's interesting for me here in, in verse 6, the, the contrast that, uh, that, that happens as, as in verses 1 through 5, he is, he is charging Timothy and he's, he's telling Timothy, listen, that times are going to get really difficult, Timothy, but you need to maintain your priorities. There are, there are things you must do. You need to be able to endure hardship, and, and you need to do the work of evangelists. You need to fulfill your ministry. You need to preach the Word. And, and then he stops, and he says, But as for me, but as for me, Timothy, my ministry is over. This is, a, this is the handing off of a, of a baton from an older man to a younger man. He says, I'm already being poured out here, like a drink offering, like the, like the wine to be poured out at the base of the altar. My life is, is to be poured out. He says it's already happening. And, and what that means is that he's not, he's not like dying a little bit at a time, right? I mean, he's in this prison cell here. But he's expressing certainty. He's expressing certainty. It, it's, it's absolutely certain this man's going to die. He is going to be executed, and it won't be too much longer until the blade of the Roman executioner's axe will take his head from his shoulders. So he's saying, Timothy, it's, it lies with you now. 
The sacrificial process for me has already begun. It's like pouring out the wine is the beginning of the daily sacrifice. My life is, is poured out. My sacrifice is, is to be, has begun. My lifeblood is soon to be poured out as a sacrifice for the gospel. He says the time, verse 6, of my departure has come. It's not, my life is not only like the wine offering that's, that's being poured out. He says now the, the time of my departure has come. The word that, uh, that Paul uses here, the Greek word for time, is a, there are two words for time in Greek, and they express kind of a little bit of a difference of a nuance here. And He's not talking about chronology. He's not saying that, uh, that you know, they told me I was going to be executed on a Thursday, and you know, it's like Wednesday night kind of thing. What he's saying is that, the, that the, the season of life, the season of time has arrived for me. We talk about the Christmas season, right? That's the, we talk about time in that way. And that's the same idea here. He's saying this, this season is here. The final period of my life has arrived. My ministry is, is just about over. We know he, he doesn't expect to die immediately here. He's just looking ahead in this chapter. And in verse 13, he says, he's calling Timothy to come to him. And he says, and when you come, bring the cloak that you left in Troas with Carpus and the books especially the parchment. So Paul is saying, you know, it's cold here in the dungeon. So uh, bring a coat, please. I left a coat. Bring it. And, and bring my books. I love that, by the way. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm um, coherent enough in the end of my life to be able to, to say, bring my books, you know. So he expects to be able to do a little more reading. Uh, and the books here are, well, we're talking about the Scriptures. In fact, I'm convinced it's the Gospel of Matthew. But that's another sermon for another day. And, uh, and he says, uh, verse 21, uh, Timothy, make every effort to come before winter. So you get the idea that, that he realizes that the, t- the end is close at hand, but it's not that he's not going to die today. He's not going to die tomorrow. He's probably not going to die the next day. But he's not going to get released. It's only going to be a matter of time and probably not too much time before his life is over. The season, the time of my departure has come. It's an interesting word here, uh, departure. It's, a, it's another metaphor, as I said, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a picture of a ship that's uh, weighing anchor and getting ready to sail. It's also used in, in uh, Greek to speak of a, of a traveler or a soldier that's, that's um, striking his tent, you know, collapsing his tent and folding it up because the journey is, has come. And Paul is basically saying that. He's saying, listen, um, it's time to weigh anchor. My life you know, is basically over. I need to raise the anchor and move on. I need, to, I need to, to take my tent down. I've arrived at the end here. These are, these are euphemisms for, for death. They talk about the deceased going home, right? Departure. There are all kinds of New Testament references to a, to a believer's Death or demise, certainly departure is one of them. Uh, Philippians one twenty three, Paul talks there about departing to be with Christ. In Second Corinthians five eight, he talks about going home to be with the Lord. Right. First Thess four fourteen, he talks about falling asleep in Jesus. Philippians one twenty one, he talks about gain. You know, death is gain. This is all. He's all speaking here about the end of his life. It has come. 
That which was once distant has now arrived. This is especially important, I think, for younger people. You know, when you're younger, you don't think about death so much, right? You know, you're sort of invincible. That's why they get young people to play contact sports and things like that. When you get to be my age, you're far too worried about breaking something. And, but when you're young, you're indestructible, right? But as you grow older in life, you come to realize that uh, that which was once distant has now drawn near. It's drawn near. One author says the, the, uh, the clouds of death have come and they're, they're hovering over him. That's a good picture. The clouds of death are now hovering over this man. Beloved, nobody lives forever. Isn't that true? Right? There are two things in the world that are entirely certain. Right? Death is one. The other is, yeah, you know it. If you don't know it yet, you will soon, right? <laughs> yeah, you bet. We don't have an endless supply of tomorrows. Nobody has an endless supply of tomorrows. You know, that reality is, uh, is really forcefully driven home uh, back in uh, Genesis chapter 5. I'll go ahead and flip you back there for a minute. Take a look at that. So we really need to grab a hold of this, this uh, point. And it's hard for us. Uh, we, um, we Americans, we don't, we don't do death very well. We don't really deal with it too well. We... Uh, we run from it, we hide from it, we make fun of it, we, um, we do all kinds of really kind of odd things because we're very uncomfortable with that kind of, kind of talk, that reality. But in uh, Genesis chapter 5, uh, and you're thinking, what in the world? Am I going back to Genesis 5 and some long genealogy? What's that guy talking about? Well, Genesis uh, 5 is, uh, is commonly known as the graveyard of uh, the Old Testament, It's called the graveyard of the Old Testament. And the reason it's called the graveyard of the Old Testament is because of a refrain that appears eight times in this chapter. And uh, you can see it here in uh, in verse 5, or it appears the first time. It says, For all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, as you read through this chapter, there are are incredible uh, lengths of time that... that, uh, that mankind lived in those days. But it didn't matter how long one lived. 930 years for Adam, you know, 969 years for, uh, what was it, Methuselah and, and so forth. But the refrain is always the same, eight times. And he died. And he died. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You could, you know, hey, how would you like to live to be 200 years old? Most days I'd say no, by the way. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of misery in life. But in any case, it doesn't matter because in the end it's going to be the same thing, right? And he died. And he died. Go to a, um, go to a, to a cemetery. Take a walk through it. Look at the birth and, and then look at the deaths, right? All kinds of time exists there, you know, long lives, short lives, so forth, but it's always the same refrain. And they died. And they died. And beloved, uh, you go back to, uh, to 2 Timothy. The importance of all of this, and I, I'm kind of laboring this point a little bit, is, is because it's, 
It's an awareness of our mortality that, that lends a sense of urgency to our lives. If we really do think we're going to live forever, then, um, you know, manana is good, right? But when we recognize that, that, that our days are limited, there's that sense of urgency that's really important. You know, we are, we are all in the process of becoming who we will be. Have you ever thought about that? You are in the process. Each and every day, you and I, we are in a process, and, and it's called the process of life. And if we continue on the same trajectory that we're presently going, we're, we're going to arrive at the destination. We're going, to, we're going to be who, we're going to become who we are. And why do I say that? Well, because what I'm trying to say is that, that our character is formed incrementally. Each and every day we make those decisions. One small step at a time. So you remember I, when I began, I said, you know, how's your life? How you doing? You happy where you are? You, you sit down here towards the end of the year, get, you know, get yourself a little quiet time and, and take a look and say, you know, am I where I want to be in life? Well, wherever you are, you got there incrementally. And, 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 and if you're not happy where you are, if you don't change something, it's going to become your life. It's going to become your life. One small step at a time. So what that means is that if when you arrive at the end, if you, if you want to have no regrets, you need to recognize that reality. That you're forming your character a little at a time and you're not going to live forever. You're not going to live forever. You need to recognize your mortality. No promises of tomorrow. So if you need to change something, when should you do it? Speak to me. Now. Yeah, now. Now. Okay, do it now. So, recognize our mortality. Second foundation that he has for us here is to, is to maintain our priority. Maintain our priority. I have fought the good fight, Paul says. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He, he again, he's, he's looking back over his life. Looking back over his life. And he's summing up his career here, and, and he does it in um, using three metaphors again. And uh, they're all drawn from the, from the sphere of athletics. So, um, so Paul was a sports fan, I think. He frequently resorts to, to athletical metaphors to, um, to speak about the Christian life, and he does that here. And his first one here in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. He, the, the picture here is of a wrestling match. Okay? It's of a wrestling match. And uh, in the Greek Olympics of that day, wrestling was an important event, and so... Uh, it was familiar to Paul. It was, I'm sure, familiar to the people he was writing to, to his, to his audience. And, and so he is, he is saying that I have, I have fought the good wrestling match. But, but good here is, is important because it, it's not talking about his efforts. He's not, he's not saying that I was in the wrestling match and, and I exerted a good effort in the wrestling match. What he is saying is that I was involved in the right wrestling match. The good match. I was, I was involved in the good wrestling match as, of, as opposed to the bad wrestling match. Okay? I'd maintained my priorities. I had maintained my priorities. He, 
He's saying, I've wrestled with the right things. I've wrestled with the right things in my life. Causes us to think, doesn't it? What am I wrestling with now? What's keeping me awake at night? Is it the right fight? Am I involved in the right fight here? Or have I gotten sidetracked? Am I off, you know, a sideshow, wrestling some guy in the crowd when I should be in the ring? I fought the right fight, he says. Beyond that, he says, I've finished the course. I've finished the course. This is another athletic metaphor here, and it comes from the realm of racing. So it goes from wrestling to racing here, and it's used, uh, the, the Greek word here, it's used of, of uh, foot races or horse races. Okay, so it's a racing term. And, he, and he's saying here that, that I've finished the course, I've, I've run the full race. I've run the full race. Okay? This, uh, this course is a reference to your life. It's used that way in the New Testament and a couple of other places, sort of the specific vocation that God has given you. You know, you have your race, you have your course to run. Okay? God's put you in a race. He hasn't put me in your race. He hasn't put you in my race. But I have a race to run. You have a race to run. And Paul is saying here that, listen, I can look back on my life and um, I've finished the race that was given me to run. Now, I find that uh, very, very encouraging because he doesn't, he doesn't claim to have won the race. You notice that? He doesn't, he doesn't say that uh, I ran the race or I, I, I won the race that God gave me to run. What he says is, is I finished the race God gave me to run. He's talking about endurance. He's talking about uh, the Christian life, the, the priorities that drive our life. And I find this interesting because if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you, you know that he had a lot of bitter disappointments in his life, stuff that really didn't turn out the way he you know, had hoped to. You know, he went to Athens. You remember that? In uh, the book of Acts, he went to Athens, and you know, he had opportunity to, to preach the gospel there before all of the important people of the city of Athens. And uh, the result of his gospel preaching was pretty dismal. Uh, there's no record in the, in the New Testament of a church ever forming there. And there were, there were many places he, he wanted to go, and he, and he never got to. And there were churches that he planted that, that turned out to be you know, less than all he had hoped for. So he doesn't look back on it, and he's not, he's not saying, hey, you know, I, I've got uh, all these victories. You know, let me tell you about all my successes. He's saying, I ran my race. I've been given a race to run. I ran it. I finished it. I, you know, I went all the way around. I went all the way around. You know, the older I get, the, the more I observe that there are no end of starters in this world. It is not too hard to get somebody to start something. I can, you know, I can give you kind of a motivational pitch. I can kind of paint it the right way and in a little bit of, of you know, spiritual arm twisting. And, and uh, in the church, we can get you to start something. Very hard to get people to finish things. Very, very hard. Life is full of starters. But it is, uh, it is glaringly absent of finishers. But Paul says, uh, I, I did. I finished 
the race. Hours behind the runner in front of him, the last marathoner finally entered the Olympic Stadium. By that time, the drama of the day's events were almost over, and most of the spectators had gone home. This athlete's story, however, was still being played out. Limping into the arena, the Tanzanian runner grimaced with every step, his knee bleeding and bandaged from an earlier fall. His ragged appearance immediately caught the attention of the remaining crowd who who cheered him on to the finish line. Why did he stay in the race? I mean, he, he had obviously lost. What made him endure his injuries to the end? I mean, the man was, was beat up. There, were, there was plenty of reason to say, you know, I'm two hours behind the front runner here. My body is, is thrashed. When asked these questions later, This is what he said. He said, My country did not send me 7,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. To finish it. There's no end to starters. The question is, are you a finisher, right? I've participated in the right wrestling match. I, I've run my entire circuit. And, and third here in verse 7, he says, I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. And this third metaphor, again, it's an athletic metaphor, and it, and it refers to the athlete's pledge to, um, to play by the rules of the contest. And again, that seems so quaint to us, huh? In today's rule, or today's world. But uh, actually, before an Olympic game, they, they would actually, like, offer a pledge. These are the rules, and I pledge my honor that I will compete according to the rules. As I say, how, how quaint, huh? But what Paul is, uh, is saying here is, is that essentially he has, uh, he has been faithful. He, is, he has kept on, in this case, believing the gospel. That's the, the rules of his race. The gospel has set the direction for his life. He, ha- he has persevered in it. He's persevered in it. He had a very, very clear picture of the purpose of his life. Very clear picture. He knew where he was going. He knew what the rules were. And this picture, it generated his priorities. And his priorities drove his activities. He knew where he was going. He knew how he needed to go, and that drove his life. Drove his life. What's the purpose of your life? All right. What is the purpose of your life? If we were to pause right now and you were to get some paper and you know, try to jot that down, what would you write? What is the purpose of your life? Do you know why God created you? Do you know? Do you know why God redeemed you? Scriptures tell us. We don't have to guess. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
right? And that, not of yourselves, it, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We love that, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? But then there's verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. The purpose is good works, Paul says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the purpose of your life? It is to manifest the good works that God has foreordained for you. There is a race. You are in a race. Your race is not my race. My race is not your race. We don't compare each other's races. Okay? God's the one who sets all of that. But you have a race to run. And beloved, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, this American culture is so laced with distractions, huh? We carry them in our pocket. Well, I don't have mine right now, but... You know, we carry those things around in our pockets, right? The little distraction box. Makes all kinds of noises. You know, and all of a sudden you feel this urgency that you've got to, like, do something. Somebody sent you a text, and my goodness, you have to respond to it, even though you're talking to me. <laughs> right? And I get it, because it happens to me, too. My wife will tell you that. She'll say, <clears throat> we're having a conversation here. <laughs> yeah, right, honey, I know that, I know that. <laughs> you know, this person will wait. You know, they can wait. So many distractions. And I think a lot of it has to do with our, with our prosperity, to be honest. We, we are so prosperous as a country. So many opportunities to, to just to be pulled in a million directions. Pulled in a million directions. And my, my fear is not that, that you would deny Christ openly. I'm not really concerned about it. I'm not concerned about that in the people at Foothill. I'm not concerned about that of the people of Summit. I mean, if you're here and you're part of Summit, you know, you're a, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not really worried that, that you're going to like one day wake up and openly deny Christ. The concern is, is, is that over time you're going to relegate Christ to a, to a small slice of your life. Right? You know, you're kind of your Sunday morning slice. And, and, and maybe, you know, maybe you've got a kind of extra little bit on the piece of pie here, you know, so you, you do a midweek growth group or something or other, right? So it's not that you deny Jesus, it's just it gets smaller and smaller. And, and, it, and, and your commitment to, to the gospel and to, to the Lordship of Christ just kind of get squeezed down until you're really not all that different than that nice guy who lives down the street, right? Who's a Mormon and lost and lost. But he's a nice guy. Give you the shirt off his back. What are you doing right now? What are you doing right now to fulfill God's purpose for your life? What would you point to? Not what have you done in the past. Now. Now. What are you doing right now? What sacrifices are you willing to make 
now. I mean, this would be a great message, I suppose, for the end of the year, you know, kind of the New Year's resolution thing and, and all that sort of whatever. But what sacrifices are you willing to make? I mean, look at Paul here, right? Back to the text, and what kind of sacrifice did he make? He's saying, listen, I'm getting poured out. It's over for me. I have, I have made the full and complete sacrifice. Now, now God is not calling on you or me to, to, to be a martyr for our faith. At least, it's not likely that's true. What are your priorities in life? What are your priorities in life? You know how you can tell, by the way? You know how you can really tell what your priorities are? It's very, it's very simple. You look, at, uh, you look at two documents. You look at your calendar, and you look at your checkbook. Isn't that interesting, huh? You look at your calendar, that, that determines where, you, where you're going and what you're doing. You look at your checkbook, it tells you, well, checkbook is kind of old school, I get it. You know, I don't know what you'd look at. Your debit card, yeah, your online statement, yeah. I'm, I'm old, man. Uh, yeah, you look at, you know, you look at your, where you spend your money. How's that? And, and that really says a lot about our priorities, doesn't it? What's important to us? Where is it invested? So if you, you, know, you want a life that, that's counting for God, you want to get to the end, you want, you want no regrets, then as I said earlier, you know, we're, we're incrementally becoming who we're going to be. So if you don't like the direction you're moving, then something's got to change, and it's probably got to change in your calendar, and it's probably got to change in your, your debit card or whatever, right? Probably where it's got to change. So if you want to live a life of uh, no regrets, you've got to recognize our mortality. We've got to maintain our priority third. Jeremy said, do not go over. <laughs> Under no circumstances go over. He said, I never go over, so do not <laughs> go over. Okay. All right. Got it. So... So third, we, we need to uh, anticipate our destiny. Anticipate our destiny, verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Hmm. You know, when my kids were growing up, I used to, I used to say this all the time, and it would really irritate them. And uh, being a good father, I'd do it anyway. Because uh, I, I actually thought it was somewhat profound. I'll try it out on you. You see what you think. See if, it, see if it would be irritating to you if, if for somebody would say this to you with some regularity. Life is hard and then you die. <laughs> but glory is coming by and by. Dad! But there's a lot of truth in that. Life is hard. And death awaits all of us. But for the Christian, glory is coming. Glory is coming, right? And that's what Paul says here. He, he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. Listen, Paul has run his race, he says. I, I finished. I finished the race. And, and so there's going to be a crown. And, and it's not going to be the, 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 um, the crown of laurel wreath, which was typically awarded to the, to the winner of an Olympic event. It's a different crown here. 
The crown of righteousness, he says. The crown which is righteousness, by the way, would be the, the way to literally translate that. I'm going to receive the, the, in full what I've only received partially or in promise, Paul's saying. The righteousness that is mine by faith union with Christ, I'm going to get it in its totality in that my battle with sin will be over. Will be over. That's pretty cool, don't you think? How I long to be done with mine. How I long to be done with mine. And when's it going to come? He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And so, and to not only me, but also all who long or loved His appearing, that day, it's, a, it's the day when Christ is finally manifested. It's the second coming He's talking about. When Jesus returns to earth, uh, sets up His great millennial kingdom, and when He completely remakes the earth, and, and the children of God then appear for, for who and what we really are. What a glorious thing to long for. What a glorious thing to long for. Listen, Christians are, are people whose true country is heaven, right? We're just pilgrims. We're strangers. We're, we're passing through. We're, we're, we're living in this life, yes, but we've got an eye on the other one to come. Looking for the Lord's return. Looking for the Lord's return. President uh, Jimmy Carter once uh, reminisced about his interview with uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover, the founder of the nuclear navy. President Carter, uh, you probably remember this, right, was a naval officer before his political life began. And uh, Admiral Rickover used to interview every officer from Ensign Up who had volunteered for and been approved to serve on a nuclear submarine. This was in the older days. And this interview with the Admiral here was stuff of Navy legend. It was a terrifying hour or two that those who suffered through it would talk about in hushed tones for the rest of their lives. Those who had gone through the ordeal, they recommended that a young man choose a few subjects that he knew a lot about and be prepared to talk to the admiral about those. Carter chose Renaissance art, naval gunnery, and a few others. But after an hour, he found himself in a cold sweat. The admiral knew more about all those subjects than he ever would. I've been on a few interviews like that. Where did you stand in your graduating class at the academy? The admiral asked him as the interview was winding down. Sir, came the reply. Proudly, I finished 56th out of a class of 820. Then another question. Did you do your best? Carter was about to say, uh, yes, sir, I did. But he caught himself. He thought it sounded a little presumptuous. 
So he said, well, well, sir, sometimes I did and sometimes I did not. So Admiral Rickhofer replied, you're saying that you did not do your best. Well, yes, sir, I guess that's right. As he swiveled in his chair, signifying that the interview was over, Rickhofer asked him, why not? Why not? And I think as I meditate on this text here and think about a a life of no regrets, if someone were to ask me, David, have you done your best with what I've given you? the Lord has given you? I'd have to say, not always. Not always. And then I think about that question. Why not? Why not? We could go out of here this morning under a load of guilt, but I don't want to do that. Right? I mean, there is a place for the law. It is the grace of God. It is not a result of human effort. You can't pull your bootstraps high enough. It is the gospel. It's believing and recognizing that that God has created us to, to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's also recognizing that that we haven't always done that, have we? We have failed. We have we have fallen short. And the Bible calls that sin. The Bible calls it sin. But God in His great love toward us has sent His own Son, the man Christ Jesus. He sent Him into the world to, to live always with full heart for God the Father. Always loving Him. Always doing His best. Always fulfilling the requirements, and then willingly right, offering himself on a cross as our substitute. So that that which we could never do but were obligated to do, he did for us, and, and then willingly grants that it can be ours by faith in him. We know God accepted his sacrifices on the third day God the Father raised him from the dead, didn't he? Made him Lord of all. And Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father and and the Scripture tells us that he is interceding with the Father on behalf of his children. If you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, you can right now. Simple, in your, in your seat, where you are. You own before God and yourself your failures, your sins, your shortcomings. You confess that God is righteous and just and that you deserve condemnation. But you believe that Christ died for you in your place. You're trusting in that and that alone. Asking Him to forgive your sins. Beloved, that is the gospel. It is the solution to sin. It is the initial solution to sin. It is the everyday solution to sin. 
If this message this morning has left you feeling like, man, I'm messed up, right? The way back is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe the truth. Believe that you are free in Christ. Your sin has been forgiven. And then go home and make the changes that you need to make. Change the direction. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for this message from the pen of the Apostle Paul that helps us in this middle of a busy holiday season. We're so busy sometimes, Father, in the seasonal aspect of the holiday, we forget what it is we're, we're celebrating, and that's the gift of your Son. But thank you for Paul bringing us up short this morning and causing us to have an opportunity, at least for 45 minutes or so, to think about uh, important things. And Father, I pray for each of us, as, as uh, your Spirit takes His Word and, and uh, applies it to our hearts, that we do a little introspection and, and uh, where we see that we're falling short. Father, may you help us to, to trust in our forgiveness through Christ, and then may your Spirit strengthen us and in our resolve and help us to make the changes that we need to make. So that we do end at the, the end of life, and, and like the Apostle Paul, we can have no regrets. For that's our desire, that's our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.